So this is actually a paper I've been working on with three philosophers. The format of the slide has gone awry, but I'm working on this paper with Justin Brunner at the University of Groningen, Toby Hanfield at Monash University, and Matt Kopeck at ANU. And I am an economist by training. So if you read the International Panel of Climate Change's fifth report in 2014, you'll come across this striking paragraph. Actions we take to reduce our emissions would change people's way of life and so affect new people born. They alter the identities of future people. Consequently, our emissions do not make future people worse off than they would have otherwise have been, since those future people would not exist if we took action to prevent our emissions. This makes it hard to claim that our emissions harm future people. Some of you may recognise that this paragraph is referring to something called the non-identity problem. For those of you that aren't familiar with the non-identity problem, don't worry, I'll explain it in a moment. But firstly, I wanted to share a quick anecdote about this paragraph. So a few weeks ago, I had the privilege to sit next to the eminent moral philosopher John Broom at a dinner back in Oxford. And John is actually one of the lead authors of this report. So obviously, I took this opportunity to ask John why he decided to put this paragraph into a policy document. And to my surprise, John started shaking his head. And he said that it was actually one of his co-authors that put this paragraph into the report. And he really didn't want to put in. So I asked him why. And John gave me two reasons. The first reason is that he said policymakers would just think philosophers are crazy. <laughs> but secondly, more importantly, he told me that he had major concerns that policymakers and ordinary people would come across this line of argument and think to themselves that they're justified to not act, to do anything to mitigate climate change or do anything to make the future generations better off in terms of welfare. So in this study, we actually investigate whether John Broom has a right to be concerned about putting this paragraph into the IPCC report. But firstly, let's take a step back. When we can choose between different types of policies that affect the future, we generate something called intergenerational social dilemmas. These dilemmas exist because there's a welfare trade-off between the current generation and the future generation. And just to clarify, by future generation, we meet people that will come into existence more than 100 years into the future. If there was no trade-offs between the current generation and the future generation in terms of welfare, there'd be no dilemma since there'd be a clear course of best action. But it's clear with a lot of um, situations that arise, these dilemmas exist. So to illustrate this, let's just think about climate change. Um, we have a toy model here where we have two simple policies that we can put in. We can choose to conserve by putting in a carbon tax, restricting our resources, mitigating fossil fuels that are emitted, or we can just say, screw it, let's just consume as much as possible. We don't care about the effects into the future. Um, in this model, if we choose to conserve, we get 10 units of welfare, and in the future, there'll be a pristine environment, so the future will have 10 units of welfare as well. However, if we choose to consume, we get two extra units of welfare because we have more consumption, but in the future, there'll be environmental degradation, there'll be pollution, and as a result, they'll only have two units of welfare. Another key component of these dilemmas is that only the present generation has any agency. The future generation is at the mercy of our decision here, right now. In this model, it is quite clear by us choosing consume instead of conserve, we're harming the future generation. If we had chosen conserve, they would have had 10 units of welfare, but if we choose consume, they only have two units of welfare. So, for simple pro-social preferences, such as not wanting to cause harm, we have a powerful argument for saying why we should choose conserve instead of consume. However, when we make these decisions, 
we not only affect the welfare of future generations, we actually also affect who comes into existence. So we call these types of decisions identity-affecting decisions. And these decisions occur when different individuals come into existence due to different policy choices that are being made. So to give you an example, let's go back over 100 years into some counterfactual world where cars were never invented. In this world, people would have had very different financial situations. Their consumption decisions would be different. Their commuting decisions would be different. And there would be a myriad of causal consequences because of this. And as a result, it's highly unlikely that your parents would have ever met. And even if your parents had met, it is highly unlikely they would have chosen to procreate on the exact same day as they chose to procreate to create you in this world. And even if they had chosen to procreate on that exact same day that you were conceived, it is highly unlikely that the exact same sperm cell and the exact same ovum would have come together to create you. So, as a result, I suggest that even in this situation, it is highly unlikely that all of us that exist here today would have existed if cars weren't made. And as Parfit says, how many of us could truly claim that even if railways and motor cars had never been invented, I would still have been born? So taking this into account, here is actually a better model of our intergenerational social dilemmas with climate change as our example. So our choice to consume instead of conserve would change people's way of life, different consumption decisions, etc., etc., and thus alter the identities of people that would exist in this future. So even though choosing to consume results in pollution and environmental degradation in the future, as we can see in this future, they only have two units of welfare, if we had chosen to conserve instead of consume, these people wouldn't exist. It would be a completely different set of people that would exist in this hypothetical future. So as a result, this is actually this set of future people's best case scenario for us to consume instead of to conserve. So if all we care about is not harming future generation, this seems to generate quite a powerful argument for us to consume because this is the best case scenario for these people. They can't be made worse off. And for us, we get two extra units of welfare. So why don't we just choose to consume and not do anything about climate change? So many moral philosophers have regarded this conclusion as absurd and instead have advocated principles that aggregate welfare regardless of identity to argue why we should be conserving instead of consuming. However, there's been very little investigation into people's attitudes, psychology, and most importantly, behaviour when we're in these identity-affecting decisions. So in this study, what we want to do is investigate what ordinary people believe and how they actually behave when they're in this context. So to do this, we run an experiment simulating these identity-affecting decisions, and what we do is we use ignorance of the decision as proxy for non-existence. So we use these experiments to try and answer two main questions. The first one, really simple, is to, do people behave more selfishly in an identity-affecting context compared to a normal decision context? And secondly, a bit of a spoiler for the first question, but if so, is this increase in selfish behaviour motivated by different normative principles or judgments, or is it due to excuse-driven behaviour? People knowing that it's wrong, but still thinking, I can get away with that without feeling guilt to act selfishly. So, although it would have been quite interesting to generate a real identity-affecting decision in the lab, it, we would have had to wait around more than 100 years to collect the data, which would have been a long time. And also, I doubt we would have gotten ethics approval for it anyway. So we try to capture people's intuitions and behaviour by using this proxy of ignorance for non-existence. So while this isn't a true version of the non-identity problem, 
I believe that valuable insights about people's beliefs and actions can still be captured, but we can discuss this more in the Q&A after. So what happened is we've got our control, we've got our treatment, and we're doing a between subject design. So we want to compare the choices of people in the control to people in our treatment. So in our control, people would come into the lab and we'd tell them that they'd been matched with a unique recipient. No one else has been matched with them. And all they had to do was make a simple choice, choose option one, where both them or the and the recipient get $10 each, or they can take an extra $2 for themselves and the recipient's endowment is reduced to $2. A week later, the recipient will come into the lab and they'd have full information of the decision made by the decision maker that was matched with them. In our identity affecting treatment, our decision maker once again would come into the lab and we'd tell them that they'd been matched with two unique recipients. But these recipients had no idea they were a part of this experiment. This took a lot of logistics to get done, but this was really important to generate the insights we wanted to generate. And once again, we told our decision makers they had two choices. They could choose option one, where they get $10, recipient one gets $10, and recipient two gets nothing, but recipient two would never be informed that this experiment ever took place and would have no knowledge of it. And the same goes for option two. They can take an extra $2 for themselves, recipient's one endowment would be reduced to zero, but they would never be informed that this experiment ever existed, they'd have no knowledge of it, and in this case, recipient two would be informed and they'd get $2. So... In the control case, it's quite clear that there's a harm occurring. If you reduce recipient one's endowment from $10 to $2, and they're fully aware of this, and they're fully aware that they've been harmed, you can say that they have been harmed. But in this case, yes, you've reduced recipient one's endowment from $10 to $0, but if you believe in a belief-dependent utility, you can say what you don't know can't harm you. So this may be able to help us generate some insights of how people behave in identity-affecting situations. So, I mean, if any of you went to Ava's talk yesterday, we didn't do this systematically, but the four of us got together and we just gave our prize what we thought the effect would be if there would be any effect. I think at most, um, I think one of us said there'll be a 10 percentage point difference. Um, however, as you can see here, um, I was shocked by this result. In our control case, I don't know why the y-axis label isn't there, we found that 26% of people in the control case chose option two, chose to take the extra $2, but in our identity affecting treatment, 62% of people chose to take the selfish option. So for those wondering, that's a 240% difference or it's a 36 percentage point difference, whichever one you um, prefer. So for us, we wanted to think, do people genuinely believe that they're justified to make this decision, that there's nothing wrong with it, or is it excuse-driven behavior like I mentioned before? So to explore this a little further, what we did is we wanted to elicit people's normative beliefs. And by normative beliefs, we mean what people think other people think is the right thing to do. And the reason why we did this is because for economists, we care a lot about incentive compatibility, about people revealing their true preferences, and we can do that with second-order beliefs. With first-order beliefs, um, not as much. We elicited that anyway if people are interested. But what we did is we used this incentive-compatible method to elicit these second-order beliefs using what's called the Krupker and Weber method. And how this works is we had new people come into the lab, we either gave them the control scenario or the treatment scenario, and we just asked them, how socially or morally acceptable do you think other people think it is to choose option two in this case? We gave them four options, very socially acceptable, somewhat socially acceptable, not socially acceptable, or very unsocially acceptable. And we told them, if you pick the modal answer that everyone else picks, so the answer with the most responses, then you get paid $10. Otherwise, if you choose any other answer, you get paid nothing. So this is meant to coordinate people onto the same second-order beliefs to help us understand what the norms are. And what we found is quite interesting. So 
if um, it's in the positive domain, people think it's a socially appropriate or moral, um, <laughs> I guess, decision. And if it's in the negative do domain, people think this decision is not socially acceptable. And remember, we're talking about option two here, taking the extra $2. So there is a little bit of a difference here, it is significant, but quite clearly in the identity affecting case, we can see it around minus 0.4, people still think it's very socially unacceptable to, still to take this option, to choose option two. Yet 62% of people are doing it. So for us, this is some insight that I guess updated our own beliefs that I think it's quite clear that there's some excuse-driven behavior going on here. And we have some other measures I think that complement this analysis, but I don't have time to talk about those today. So some of you may realize that we did a little bit of trickery. We actually made two changes in that um, initial experiment in experiment one. We added an extra person and we added this, um, I guess, ignorance to the decision as well. So as a result, there are two possible mechanisms that we think can be um, driving this excuse-driven behavior. The first one, as I mentioned, is that there's no aggrieved witnesses. The person that you harm doesn't know that they've been harmed, so for some people you haven't harmed them at all, but as a result, that could be driving people's decisions to take the extra $2. The other one is simply the forced trade-off. You can only benefit one of the two recipients. And in this case, when you're unsure of which of these recipients to benefit, you may use that as an excuse just to defer to, a, a, I guess, a decision to maximize your own payoff. So there's a really easy way to test this. So once again, we've got our identity affecting treatment here on the left, and all we did here was remove ignorance. So in this case, our, deci our decision makers were told, once again, you're matched with two people. They don't know they're a part of this experiment, but once you make your decision, both of them will come into the lab even the one who gets zero dollars. So we had some people come into the lab and paid them nothing because we really wanted to untangle these mechanisms. So in this case, this allows us to untangle whether it's the ignorance that's driving the decision or if it's just the fact that you can only give recipient one something or recipient two something. And in this case, people can use this as an excuse to take $12. Um, just quickly, I actually want to get a poll here. I'm really curious. Do people think it's the ignorance that's driving the decision? Does anyone have any strong prize on that? What about the forced trade-off? Does anyone think it's the forced trade-off? Yeah, a few people feel you've read the paper, so that's a bit unfair. But um, <laughs> um, for me, I was arguing with my um, co-authors the whole time, saying it's definitely going to be the ignorance. There's some research that ignorance plays a large role in people's decisions in the behavioral economics literature. Lucky I didn't bet on it, because this is what we found. In our revealed treatment, when we removed the ignorance, still 59% of people were choosing the selfish option. So there's no statistically significant difference between our revealed treatment and our identity affecting treatment. And it seems all the work in selfish behavior is being done just by having this you know, counterfactual trade-off, um, which is really interesting for a number of reasons, which I'll get back to in a second. So um, I think I'm a bit early, but we'll just get through this part then. So what's the upshot here? So what we try to do in this paper is simply investigate people's beliefs and behavior in identity affecting context. We really wanted to try and get at their intuitions. Our main findings are quite clearly people act more selfishly in our simulated identity affecting context. This happens despite the fact that normative beliefs say that acting in this way is morally and socially inappropriate. And I think that's really fascinating when the beliefs diverge from action. And the reason why is we find evidence of excuse-driven behavior as a result of forced trade-offs. And we weren't expecting to go down this path, but forced trade-offs are ubiquitous. They're not just, uh, I guess, present in identity-affecting situations. Think about redistribution policies today of inequality. Think about even free trade versus tariffs. These have winners and losers. And when you have winners and losers, I think in this context, it would be really interesting to explore if people just defer to what benefits them the most when you present it in this format. And lastly, um, 
I sort of want to go back to what I talked about at the start and reiterate the concerns of John Broom. So I feel a bit weird giving this presentation, especially if it's getting put up on YouTube, because this might actually be dangerous research to be doing in terms of people in terms of people's folk folk attitudes. Um, people might think about these type of decisions in this naive model. In fact, I have a strong pride that people don't really think about all these counterfactuals when thinking about what policies to put in. If that's the case and we disseminate this information and people start thinking differently, then maybe we're lowering the probability about dealing with problems like climate change and other issues that have effects in the long-term future. Hopefully we can find a way to mitigate these behaviours, but I do have some concerns and um, hopefully no one actually becomes selfish because of um, this paper. But yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> Okay, our discussant for this talk is Phil Trammell. Uh, Phil is a junior researcher as, at Oxford's Global Priorities Institute, exploring ways to apply the tools of economic theory to questions of long-term importance. He has served in economics research roles at the University of Chicago, NARA Economic Consulting, and the Cato Institute, and he, oh, and he holds degrees in economics and mathematics from Brown University. Please welcome Phil. Okay. Yeah. Uh, first off, thanks for this, Ben. Um, I think in general, um, there are a lot of insights to be had uh, exploring how uh, I mean, behavioral economics has a lot to teach us um, about how people will respond to these long-termist projects that we think a lot about in EA, but um, most people tend not to. Um, of course, we often talk as if people are either thinking along long-termist lines or consequentialist lines. Uh, or not, but of course there's a broad spectrum, no one's ever really on either end, and uh, it's good to be aware of these quirks for ourselves as well, so um, we can, you know, learn to better discipline our own altruistic behavior and not fall prey to convenient excuses. Your sequence of experiments, um, to my mind, does an excellent job of posing uh, three questions and does a good job of answering the first two. So first, it asks whether people trade off interpersonal benefits differently from intrapersonal ones um, and finds that they do, right? Second, it establishes that they do so not out of a sincere belief that there's a morally important difference between the cases, but as an excuse. And third, it identifies two possible excuses they could be using, which you call the forced trade-offs reason and the uh, aggrieved witness reason. Uh, and it rules out the latter, right? It rules out that if you... Uh, introduce the aggrieved witness by, uh, you know, revealing to people that they were they were denied uh, a potential distribution. Um, people still go ahead and uh, sort of take the and consume in a sense that yeah. So it rules out the latter of the two excuses. I do have two concerns with where you go from here, though. Um, my first is that it seems to me that there are excuses people might be using beyond the two that you list. So ruling out the second doesn't imply the first. For instance, uh, instead of the necessity of making a trade-off between people justifying the selfish act, uh, it could be that something neatly symmetric to your aggrieved witness hypothesis is really what's going on. That is, it could be that the presence of a thankful witness quasi-justifies giving to person B. 
That is, depriving A of the $10 feels okay, because it's like, if A ever confronts us, we can always say, you know, hey man, take it up with B. I helped someone. He, he likes it. So within a generation, the forced trade-offs excuse and what I'm calling the thankful witness excuse will always line up. But this brings me to the second concern, which is that the analogy between these experiments and our position with respect to future generations um, could be a bit tenuous. Future generations living in a climate-damaged world will know that the climate damages are our fault. That is, there will be aggrieved witnesses. And justifiably or unjustifiably, I'm sure they will in fact complain about the damages, just as we currently complain about many of the things our ancestors did, even though we wouldn't have existed if they hadn't done them. Realistically, the person taking the place of person B in your experiment one doesn't seem like they have a right to complain in the experiment because they got $2 and they would have gotten nothing. Um, but as a matter of psychology, future people who take the place of person B will, will feel aggrieved, probably. Um, but here, there will be no thankful witness to offset this grievance. So if this is what's going on, people will still care just as much about climate change after realizing that it's an identity-affecting case, because they'll go down in history as, you know, th there'll be people with grievances against them. There won't be anyone, in a sense, thanking us. Uh, you might say, okay, they're not actually around now to, to complain the way person A would be, and that's true, but that's true for all decisions that affect future generations, regardless of whether they'd be identity-affecting. So that would mean your experiment would be shedding light on how people think about long-term decisions rather than identity-affecting decisions in, in, in particular. Um, and likewise, if the aggrieved witness hypothesis had been supported, that is, if people had been fine with giving to B only if A were kept in the dark, um, then that also wouldn't have pinned down uh, how people think about future generations, since, again, future generations take the place of the small beneficiary, um, and they will be aggrieved witnesses. So I know you end up rejecting the aggrieved witness theory anyway, but yeah, I think the, the study would have left it open either way. Yeah, so, I mean, you just like said a lot there, so I'm, I'll try and respond to a few of them if right. that's, that's fine. Yeah. So I think, just firstly, um, we actually elicited beliefs of the recipients and of the decision makers about how grateful they think um, recipients would be or how angry they think, you know, recipients would be getting zero, so we have data on that. Right. Um, this is like quite recent, only a few weeks ago, that's why I didn't include it in what I sent you. I apologise for that, but we find that there's no real difference in how grateful the $2 recipient is to the $10 recipient. And um, I don't think there's any real difference in anger either. So we always thought that, you know, choosing option two would not only um, mean that the one person won't know that they've ever been harmed, but also the other person would be, you know, grateful and thankful that they got something when in the other case they wouldn't have gotten anything. Um, however, we didn't find that in the data. And um, secondly, what was the other main concern that you had? Oh, yeah. So I, I didn't want to exclude the fact that um, no aggrieved witness would be doing some of the work. Like we could have a situation in our control case where we put that in, and I'm sure we'd find an increase in selfish behavior. So I think both mechanisms do drive this to an extent, but I think it's quite clear that this on its own is sufficient to do enough of the work for us to worry about it, as in the forced trade-off case. So I, I shouldn't say that we reject the um, no aggrieved witness hypothesis. It's just the fact in this case, like on its own, the revealed treatment is doing enough of the work to make people selfish. So I think that's the important insight that we're generating here. 
Okay, so we'll go on to some audience questions at this point. Um, so one audience member um, asks, I'd be interested in including shared identity in the experiments. So for instance, framing both the people affected as part of the same in-group as the participants. In this case, it would be more similar to our descendants rather than random strangers, even if our descendants are in fact random strangers. Do you think this would have an effect? Um, yeah, that, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I wish we had, you know, more of a budget to explore these types of questions. I, I, I think, I think it would, you know, I think people's moral circles, um, uh, are quite narrow and our experiment was completely anonymous. You had no idea who you were matched with. You just knew you were matched with someone and that was like a causal chain of matching. It wasn't just someone randomly assigned after you made your decision. So I think if you were aware, like even for example, if we just showed a picture of the people you were matched with, maybe that would have an effect. If you put like, you know, someone that you're friends with is one of the participants and a stranger is someone else, I'm sure that would have some effects on behavior as well. Yeah. We'll go to one more question. Um, so another audience member asks, what does force trade-offs mean in this context? And um, perhaps you have some examples of types of force trade-offs that are existing in the climate change model that you presented. Yeah, so by force trade-off, we simply mean you can only benefit one of the recipients. You can't benefit both. Essentially, in a lot of economic policy decisions, um, we say that they're Pareto-optimal because no matter what, there's going to be winners and losers if you change things around. And that's why we have so many policy de debates today. Like I was saying, with like um, redistribution, yes, we can you know make the people worse off in terms of income inequality better, but that means some people are going to be made worse off to where they are now. So um, in regards to climate change, um, if we put in something like a carbon tax, it's quite clear that's going to mitigate our consumption now and lower our wealth now. So there's going to be some losers because of that. And when you frame it in the context that I said, when it's not necessarily you're making someone better off Sorry, when someone's going to be counterfactually made better off or worse off, no matter which decision you make, it seems like, from what we found, people just defer to um, benefiting themselves. And I'm really interested in exploring this in, in more of a, a now policy case with something like free trade or wealth distribution. Yeah. Okay, that's all the time we have for questions. Let's thank Ben and Phil one more time.